Um, we really have no time for an introduction, so we're just going to jump right in, okay? I hope you've been tracking with us in this story. Right now, we're at the point of exile. If you grew up in church land, you know about Daniel and the lion's den. You know about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're going to be nailing that period of time. They are not in Jerusalem. They are not home. They are far from home in what's called the exile. And so if you've got your uh, copy of the story, I want to encourage you just go ahead and turn in it to chapter 18. If you've got your Bible, you could turn in it to, to the book of Daniel. Daniel. But the thing that we're focusing in on is them at exi- in exile. Christians in America have this tendency to play the victim big time. Like we, we like right now, for example, this morning, my CNN app let me know that there's a student somewhere in the South that's suing the school district because of school prayer. I didn't even know that schools still had school prayer, but, but apparently he was He's suing them. And so as Christians, a lot of times we get this posture of the victim of like, man, you know what? We are, we are like totally persecuted. No, we're not. Nowhere in, in any stretch of imagination. The whole Bible was written from the perspective of those who are on the absolute lower rung of oppression. We as, an America, as Americans are Amer- our world superpower. And as a country with a lot of Christians, we have a, a ton of might, a ton of power no matter what you feel culturally, no matter how uphill a climb it feels or or decline or whatever, we do not get exile the way that they understood exile. We don't get oppression the way that they got oppression. And this is a time where God's people are in a foreign land. They're in Babylon. And so they're totally, totally distant from where was home. In spite of the fact that we don't get exile, we do get the understanding of being in a situation that's beyond our control We understand the idea of feeling absolutely powerless and frustrated like I've got no purpose or point. We get all of that. But what we don't get is complete exile. But what we can do is we can actually learn from the exiles and find joy in whatever kind of exile, what kind of degree of that is going through your life. And we can walk in their path, their steps. The first one is to embrace whatever privilege you have and use it for God. Again, if you have your copy of the story, you can go to the first part of chapter 18 or uh, the book of Daniel, chapter 1. And this passage, it starts off with describing the reality of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and their status in this culture. Then the king, that's Nebuchadnezzar, ordered Ashpenaz. If you're looking for baby names, Ashpenaz. Chief of his court officials to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility. Okay, pause. That means that these guys are from Davidic line. So they're royalty. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, royalty. Young men without, bing, any physical defect, bing, handsome, bing, showing an aptitude for every kind of learning, bing, well-informed, bing, quick to understand, and bing, qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among them, those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The only name that we remember there is Daniel, right? That's because of this. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So basically, not only are you taken, ripped out of your homeland, but when, they get, when you get there, all of a sudden they're saying, yeah, your name, way too Hebrew sounding. 
We're not cool with that. We're going to give you a more Babylonian Persian vibe. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Belteshazzar, even no one's going to remember Belteshazzar, they're still going to call you Daniel. They're going to love these names. And that's kind of how it happened. Now here's the reality. These guys have got a couple of things going for them. Okay, why are they set apart? Remember the beings. Why are they set apart? That's right. Last night I said that they were hot. And my son Rylan was in the back. He's like, Dad. But they were. They were hot. What else? They were crazy smart. Okay, and they had an aptitude for this. So they have, could they impact the genes that they were born into to make them so hot? No, but they were. Could they impact the fact that they were from the royal land, line of David? No, we can't choose who we're born, what family we're born into. So they've got lots of things that are given to them that are privilege. This past uh, two years, uh, within the conversation with Black Lives Matter and other, other things, one of the phrases that surfaced was white privilege, which made a lot of white people really angry because white people are like, we, I'm not privileged, I'm anything but privileged. To which many white people would agree until you realize that what that means is actually something broader. One of the activists within the group defined white privilege or any kind of privilege as this both obvious and less obvious passive advantages that people may not recognize they have. These include cultural affirmations of one's own worth, presumed greater social status, and freedom to move, buy, work, play, and speak freely. Now, the reality is, is that if you are a white person, you do have some privileges that are just naturally yours. But the reality is, is that if you're not white, you too have privileges. In fact, I, I realized this when I was, um, when I was I, for the first couple years of my life, I, I went to Dunsmore Elementary School. I think there was like one or two kids of color in the whole school. Everyone else was like crazy white, like bleach white, transparent white. My parents moved to Torrance, and we were, all of a sudden I'm in the Los Angeles Unified School District, and I was the only white kid in my whole grade. And all of a sudden I realized that my whiteness was not a privilege. It was a handicap. Because not only did I not look like everyone else, I was made fun of it because I didn't look like everyone else. I didn't speak the language, I didn't get the jokes, and the only Spanish that I learned was the bad words. And so like this, this whole environment, I was someone who was the easy one to go to, to be the last person picked, the one who was first to be made fun of, until Enrique. Enrique was Hispanic. He was actually Mexican, and he spoke Spanish. Enrique used his brown privilege because he had an audience he had an advantage that I didn't have. They listened to Enrique, and he leveraged that to protect me. He made sure that I was picked on the team, not last, in spite of my whiteness, even in basketball, in spite of my whiteness. He made sure that when kids were picking on me, Enrique stepped in, and he actually had my back. Now, Enrique could totally deny that he has brown privilege. I could totally deny that I have white privilege. But why would I do that? Because the truth is, no matter who you are, if you're white, you have white privilege, brown, brown privilege, there's lower income privilege, wealth privilege, youthful privilege, old and experienced privilege, etc. No matter who you are, you have a platform unique to you. There's a community that will listen to you more because of who, where, who you are, where you come from. And you could deny it, but why would you do that? If you're white, what are you doing with your white privilege? If you're a person of color, what are you doing with your, the fact that you're a person of color with that privilege? If you're rich, what are you doing with your wealth that is actually honoring to God? 
If you're poor, if you're homeless, there's actually, you can speak to folks who are at the same status as you, better than someone who's on the flip side of town. You have privilege, and you have a choice to deny it, or you can embrace whatever privilege you have and use it for God. And that's exactly what the exiles did. The exiles leveraged the natural and developed influence they had for God's glory. The things that they could not change about themselves, they leveraged that for God's glory. And the fact that they were smart and they had a high aptitude for things, they used that for God too. What are you doing? What are you waiting for? Are you waiting because you, because you don't feel you're, you're too young? Mm-mm. No, you have youthful privilege. Are, are you just sitting the bench out because you're too old? No. No, you have old and experienced privilege. Own it, embrace it, and use it for God's glory. No matter who you are, you have a platform I don't have. So step into the game like the exiles did. But not only that, Not only do we see them doing that, but we also see that they realized whatever they lacked, God provided. God was calling them into something that was going to push them beyond what their resources were, beyond their handsomeness or their intelligence. There was going to be a a, a shelf where they couldn't get beyond that. There was going to be a ceiling that they couldn't get to the other side of, and they were going to need God's help. If you take a look at page 251 and following, we have a, a situation where Nebuchadnezzar, this super, super narcissistic leader, okay? He's the leader of the country and he's all about himself. He thinks he's amazing. And, and in the midst of that, he actually has this crazy dream. He asks all of his astrologers to, to be able to interpret it because it's, it's, it's driving him insane and no one can do it. And that makes this guy, this narcissist, so freaked out that he was like, that's it. All of my assistants are going to die. They're all going to get executed. All of my astrologers, all of the people that that are support staff, including Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're all going to die. And so the guy who's supposed to do this killing, this execution, is this guy named Arioch. This is the second to last paragraph on page 251. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Ariak then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went to the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised God of heaven. It goes on to say that he even, before the king, before he interprets it, advocates for the astrologers and the pagans' lives. Don't kill them. Don't kill them. Don't mess with them. Here's what your dream means. Daniel was called to do something. He was called to a land that was not his choice. He was in Babylon. He's not home. And and in Babylon, he's called to represent God the best he can. So how does he find joy in exile? When he has no more resources to do what God wants him to do, he turns to God. You will always have at your fingertips what you need to do what God wants you to do. You always have at your fingertips uh, everything that you need to do what God wants you to do. Our problem is that a lot of times we pray and we get frustrated that God isn't stepping up and providing for the things that we're praying for. When often the things that we're praying for are self-preservation, self-comfort, self, self, self. 
when we actually are recognizing that God has called us to do some super, super crazy uncomfortable things, to love super, super crazy uncomfortable people or forgive them, all of a sudden we are at the end of our resources. We turn to God who actually steps in and gives us exactly what we need, just like he did with these guys. Thirdly, when we're looking at the exiles, we're, we can recognize that they're telling their story with both actions, actions and words. Here's the thing. People, um, if you grew up um, reading any type of um, the early church fathers or any, any type of devotional classics, you're going to come across this guy named St. Francis of Assisi. Assisi. And St. Francis was a guy that, that he, amazing stuff. And he has one phrase that I think has been taken out of context because he says things later on that, that, that refute it. But the thing that St. Francis said one time was he said, preach the gospel everywhere and when necessary, use what? words, which sounds so good. People put that like they get tattoos of that. They put it on their living room or something. Preach the gospel everywhere, and when necessary, use words. In other words, you really don't need to talk about God. Just live it, because when people see your actions, they're going to be so blown away, they're going to get it. No. Preach the gospel, and when necessary, use words is like saying, um, give me, I, I, I want to be able to phone call you. I, I want to make a phone call to you. If necessary, give me numbers. If I'm going to call you, I need to know your number. I need to know the digits. Otherwise, I, I, I'm, I'm lost. We can't be the type of people who are just, just using words or just using actions. The actions are married to words. Tell your story, the story between you and God, by marrying together the actions plus the words. Because what the exiles did was this. They told their story both in countercultural choices and countercultural statements. Daniel, right off the bat, because it was against the, the Torah and the Talmud to be able to, to um, eat some of the stuff that, that was being put in front of him as a king's assistant, he said, I can't do this. Just let me go vegetarian for a week with my buddies, the, the, with the rest of the exiles. Let me go vegetarian for this period of time and see who's healthier, me or the other people who are in your service. And, and just by doing that, all of a sudden, they were able to get a platform where they were to communicate why. They had actions plus words. Every time you see God's people that were exiles put in a predicament where they're having a choice to choose between God and, and worshiping some pagan deity, and they choose God, they don't just simply do that. They do it by marrying actions and words. They're doing consistently good stuff for Nebuchadnezzar, good stuff for their community, good stuff even for the astrologers, but they always marry those good actions with words. It's not one or the other. It's something that we see consistently throughout. Um, and we see that's something that they are, they're showcasing. If you look at page 255 or Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, this is that classic Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fiery furnace deal, right? Nebuchadnezzar, the narcissist, sets up a situation, and there's a lot of conspiracy behind it, but sets up a situation where he has this massive, massive uh, statue to himself where he's calling everyone to worship it. And if you don't worship it, it's going to be capital punishment. You're going to totally roast in the fiery furnace, and everyone's going to get, have an awesome and on an evening show by watching you burn. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are, uh-oh, we can't do this. And listen to what they say. They're not just choosing not to do something. They're marrying that action with words. Shadrach, this is the second to last paragraph on 255. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But get this, I love this. But even if he does not, just think about that. 
if you watch us roast, if you watch us burn and our God doesn't save us, but even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Our God's gonna deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we're not going there. We're not doing this. They make bold statements that are not just actions. They're actions married to words. And we saw this this past week in the news um, with, with uh, Dr. Nasser, Dr. Larry Nasser, um, the, Olympic, um, the, the Olympic, Olympic doctor, USA Olympics doctor um, being brought into court and so many people talking about his abuses. We saw one person surface that was actually one of the key whistleblowers, Rachel uh, Denhollander. And Rachel was someone who um, the, the, the judge in, in this particular case said is the most brave person she has ever met. And it's because the fact that she risked everything to surface this and to gather together people to be able to proclaim this reality against her. Now, if Rachel would have simply, as a Christian, she is a Christian, so she's, she's a sister in the Lord. If, if she would have simply brought this injustice to light and, and testified against Larry, that's a good thing. As a Christian, she should be a vocal point. She should be someone who's speaking into that. That would have been enough. But she doesn't. She marries the work, the good work, with actual words that are proclaiming the gospel. When, she's talk, when she had a chance to directly talk to Dr. Nasser, this is what she says. In your early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom and you've spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it's on that basis that I appeal to you. If you've read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portray, portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry, if you've read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things, as if good deeds can erase what you've done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all of its utter depravity and horror without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you've done what you've seen in this courtroom today. The Bible you carry says it's better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and thrown into a lake of fire for you to make even one child stumble. And you've damaged hundreds. The Bible you speak carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you've done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. This is in a courtroom, folks. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found, and it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness for me though I extend that to you as well. Rachel, in a situation as one who was abused, could have just checked out and tapped out of the whole situation. I don't need this anymore. I don't even say anything. Being face-to-face with this man is going to be too much. That would have been understandable. But she, on top of actually being someone who, in Christ, I need to do this to protect these women, she stands up and speaks truth. But then she goes one step further by marrying truth with the words that are pointing someone to God. I could not believe it when I heard that. Like, I was blown away this past week when I saw and listened to her actually say that on top of everything else that she said. 
as Christ followers, you want to find joy in the exile? Tell your story with actions and words, and that's going to freak you out, whether you're an elementary school kid, high school kid, or you're a senior. You're going to be someone who's walking through the difficulty of that. Do it, and you'll find joy. But not only that, fourthly, the exiles showed us that we can remember that God has the last word even here. God has the last word even here. Because as we've talked about already, they are not home. They're in exile. It is as dark as it gets. We take a look on page 261. Another passage that, that Christians have used and abused is Jeremiah 29, 11. You, you may have this, um, this may be on, on a plaque in your house, and for good reason. It's, it's a hopeful statement, but we forget the context. The context is people are away from home, and they're actually in the darkest days of their life when God says this. This is the uh, third paragraph down on 261. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, wait, how many years? When 70 years, years, are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place, back to Jerusalem. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You'll seek me and you'll find me. When you seek me with all of your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. See, see Daniel, and that was actually the prophet Jeremiah speaking right there, but Daniel and Jeremiah are talking about a hope for exiles, they're proclaiming it, that we can trust God's plan even in the darkness this is why the book of Daniel, the last like half of it is all this crazy vision. Daniel gets this vision about the future and, about, and it's like goats and rams with crazy amount of horns. It's all super symbolic. And what it's talking about is that, that the Babylonian empire is going to be taken over by this empire, which is going to be taken over by the Greeks. And eventually all this terrible stuff's going to happen, but we can trust God because we can remember that God has his last word even in that time. And so when that took place, they come back home and all of a sudden they realize even though we're here, we're praying for God to deliver us, Jeremiah 29.11 of God giving us a hope and a future did not happen like that. We waited 70 years. Can you pray for something for 70 years and still believe God is good? Because we can remember that God is the last word, even in that. So all of a sudden they come back home. God kept his promise. God is good. But then all those things that Daniel had the vision about happening, about the Medo-Persian Empire coming in and taking over the Babylonians, and then the Greeks taking over them, and then coming down and bringing Jerusalem to its knees, and the terrible horror of what that was going to be. It was all prophesied by Daniel. And the reason it was prophesied was to say this. This is dark. This is messed up. But this is not the end. And they see that it's not the end. And they come back and God restores them. And then all of a sudden in Jesus' time, all of a sudden Jesus is talking about the fact that there's going to be some crazy days ahead. John, the disciple that he loved, um, when he's in, um, imprisoned on Patmos, writes out the vision, which is the book of Revelation, talking about this crazy day when all these terrible things are going to happen. And a couple years later, or within that time frame, we see that, that sure enough, the Romans come in and the Romans come in and they explode the temple. They, they, they crucify, not just Jesus, they crucify all these other Jews all around the city gates to let them know we are in charge. And in the dark days of that, where are the Hebrews looking? The book of Daniel. Why? 
because they were remembering that God has the last word, even here. It's dark, but this is not the end. It's 2018. We read the book of Revelation, and we're looking forward to the fact that as dark as it is, this is not the end. The same God who is good to his word to bring his captives back from captivity, the same God who is good to his word to, through Antiochus Epiphanes in, I six, in 160 BC to restore them from his awful narcissistic rulership was good to his word. The same God who is restored and restored and restored will come back. You're in a dark time. You may be absolutely in the darkest, darkest point, but you need to know this is not the end. And the God, the God that we serve, has the last word even, even here, even going through what you're going through. In a moment, we're going to have communion. But after communion, we're going to have an opportunity. If you need prayer, if you're going through one of those dark periods of time, where seriously, you're like, I, I'd love to believe that God has got the last word, even in this, but I'm having a hard time seeing it. We're going to have some pastors and, and folks up here in the front, and I want to encourage you to come forward for prayer, okay? And we can pray over you. But before that, we're having communion, which actually is the very thing that reminds us of what it is that Jesus promised to accomplish. Uh, it's the bread and the cup. So what I, we have uh, tables in the back and in the front. If you're a believer, this is open to you. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is for you. No matter what church you've come from, you can exit your row on the left-hand side, take the elements and bring them back. You can go on both sides of the table to make sure everyone gets through and spend some moments in reflection and we'll take the elements together. Go ahead and do that now.